Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant. When I saw the prosperities of the wicked, they had no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves in violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? How does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one wakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near the Lord. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Well, thanks for that reading, David. Uh, if you're new or visiting, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. Uh, it's great to be back with you. I've just had a week or so off uh, for annual leave. I got to the cricket, managed to get burnt. thought I'd wear a matching shirt tonight to go with that. Um, but um, it's, it's great to be back and uh, share in this series as we go through the Psalms. Um, we looked at one last week and we'll be looking the next couple of weeks as well. Um, tonight, Psalm 73. So let me pray for us, ask that God will really help us as we think about uh, this section of his word together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather tonight. Uh, we thank you that you are a speaking God, that you desire relationship with your creation and ultimately the pinnacle of your creation, humanity, and that you have revealed yourself in your word as a result and ultimately in the person of your Son, and as we look at your word through Asaph some three millennia ago, we ask that you might help us to see the freshness of it as we consider ourselves and our world today and our need to respond to you as well. Grant us insight, challenge us afresh, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the American uh, singer-songwriter Billy Joel uh, had a hit song back in 1977 called Only the Good Die Young, and he sings in one of the verses the following lyric. They say there's a heaven for those who will wait, 
Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. You know that only the good die young. Now, these words, uh, which I guess are perhaps typical of our age today, really resonate with the first part of Psalm 73, where Asaph, the writer, is wondering if living for God in an ungodly world is really worth it. Billy Joel argues it's not, that there's no reason to miss out on what he sees as the fun things in life. And Asaph is reflecting on this theme, this idea, as he looks around in his day some 3,000 years ago and sees many of those who reject God prospering while he struggles along as he seeks to live God's way. And it's a real challenge to his faith and he's wrestling with this idea as he goes through this psalm. Notice what he states again from verses 3 to 7 and verse 12. It gives us a, a snapshot again of some of his thinking. He says, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're, they're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. And you can see the challenge of observing that. That's his lived experience. And it's one of those questions, isn't it, that hits every believer at some point in their life as well. Why maintain faithfulness to God when those who ignore God and live for themselves seem to get on just fine? We observe those kind of things all the time around us, don't we? And perhaps on an even greater level, injustices in the world that make us question, you know, well, those that are seeking to do good just don't seem to be rewarded for that, and many who do the wrong thing. Innocent children seem to die in wars, get childhood cancers, and then criminals seem to live a long life and be surrounded by family and die in their sleep at the age of 90, as some mafia bosses seem to do. And what makes matters worse, Asaph says, is that other people often find no fault in those that reject God and live in a way that harms others. In fact, there's, there seems to be no consequences even for those who snigger blasphemy and speak about God. Notice what he says again in verses 10 and 11. Therefore, their people, that is, those who reject God, turn to them and they drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? And so at work, you know, the guy who knocks off material seems to be applauded by his mates. You know, the one who will lie for the boss seems to get promoted while you're struggling to hang on to your job because you spoke the truth. The woman who boasts about her adultery at the yacht club seems to be envied because of what she gets away with. And so this question keeps coming back. Uh, why should I live for God in a godless world? Why should I live for God in a godless world? We're going to see two answers at least to that question tonight as we look at this psalm together. First answer is this. Because self-rule will end badly. Self-rule will definitely end badly. Have a look at what he comes to Asaph as he begins to reflect on this with God's perspective from verse 17. 
till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on a slippery slope, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. It's tricky, isn't it? Because our sense of justice tells us that good people should live and prosper and evil people should suffer and die. That's why Hollywood movies usually end that way, right? The hero or the heroine is vindicated. We like happy endings. And when movies don't have them and they do um, preliminary viewing, people react and they rewrite the ending to make it good because that's what people want to hear. Happy endings satisfy our sense that you know, good people deserve happiness. But life's often not like that. Asaph has recounted that through verses 2 to 16 and the first part of this psalm. And yet he said in verse 1 at the very beginning, the opening verse, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And really the whole psalm hangs on this truth, this important truth about God's commitment to being good to his people, a truth which is grounded in his covenant-keeping love, which goes right back to Mount Sinai as the nation is established and has given the Ten Commandments. But it seems that Asaph, like ourselves, has come face to face with people and situations that seem to contradict this truth, seem to disprove God's goodness, appear as if he is blessing wickedness. And so he acknowledges that this really threatened his faith, that this was a problem. Verse 2, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. He's losing hold of his faith in God because he is just upset by his own experience and what happens around him. And he even concludes in verses 13 and 14 that maybe he's kept his heart and his hands clean for no reason, in vain, because, well, he's been stricken. Things have not gone well for him. He's basically saying that if God is not good to his people, then is there any point? What's the point of living as a Christian? So how can that tension be resolved? How can his faith be strengthened and ours likewise? How can we be reassured of God's goodness so that we might stand faith, stand firm in our faith rather than stumbling and slipping as he talks about in verse 2? Well, he says from verse 17 that the key point for him, the solution to this tension is judgment day. It's the eternal destiny of each person. The light only dawns for him when he enters God's sanctuary. Now, under the old covenant, the sanctuary was the, the place set apart for the worship of God, which was firstly the tabernacle or the special tent of meeting, and then later the temple, which King Solomon built, and there God's people would go and worship and focus on his word and reflect on God's view of the world and his promises to them and how they might live in response to them. But we see in Asaph he's been obsessing about the apparent injustices of the wicked flourishing and the pure in heart often struggling. But now he finally sees clearly as he reflects on God's eternal perspective. Until he enters God's presence, 
he is assessing things from a short-term, worldly point of view. And that's why he's so frustrated. That's why he's feeling this dissonance between God's promises and his own lived experience. But when he steps back and considers eternity, well, the overall picture becomes clear and his confusion starts to fade into the background. And there are a couple of things here, did you notice, that Asaph realises as he thinks about God's final judgement. Firstly, just as he had almost slipped in his trust in God, he now sees that the wicked are actually placed on a far more slippery slope. He's saying self-rule will definitely end badly. God will dispense his perfect justice on the last day, and the wicked will not escape. Things will be brought to account. It won't continue if it seems unfair as it has in this life. The sinner will be condemned on judgment day unless they repent and turn back to God. But secondly, as a result, he says, well, if you are a believer, if you are somebody trusting in God's promises as he was, then you should not envy the prosperity and the health of the wicked. In fact, he says that is senseless, that is ignorant. He's really critiquing himself, notice, in verses 21 and 22. He's describing himself as a man who was embittered by what he saw. He was behaving like a wild animal. He was misguided in his assessment. There's no sugarcoating in any of that section, is there? There's no, oh, well, but I had excuses to think this way. He doesn't excuse himself for a moment. What he's saying is that if our experience Our faith seemed to contradict some events that happen in the short term. We're not considering the full picture. And maybe that's because we focus so much today on the short term. Perhaps every generation has. You know, we're looking for an immediate reward for living for God. You know, if I read the Bible and pray this week, then good things should happen to me. And so am I doing these things so that I might then get something from God or am I actually living in relationship with him, not looking for a response. It's tricky. We live in a world of fast food, fast credit, instant messaging. We just, you know, we want things to happen straight away and we think it should happen like that in our walk with the Lord. And then we get frustrated. We start reassessing things because it hasn't unfolded the way I thought it would this week or this past year. And then we're angry with God or we resent what has happened. And we begin to doubt God's goodness. And we find ourselves in the world of Asaph in the first part of this psalm. He's saying, no, hang on a minute. If you have pictured the world like that, you are picturing the wicked as if it's a still photograph just in one moment in the present when things seem to be going well for them. But you need to picture it as a movie that's going to have a tragic ending. Look towards what will follow. You're only going to envy a person who is rejecting God if you are forgetting that they are on their way to destruction. Anyone who rejects God is to be pitied, not to be envied. Let me give you an example. Take, for example, the richest person in Australia at this moment, 69-year-old mining magnate Gina Reinhart. She's worth a cool $31 billion dollars. She owns lots of big mining plots in WA, copper, iron ore. She's also the second largest cattle producer in Australia. She's got a portfolio of properties that go right across the country. 
She has a lot of influence in politics, especially in WA. A lot of people envy her wealth and her power and her influence. And yet you only have to dig a little bit deeper, even in this life, to see that there are cracks in the facade of this wonderful supposed life that she has. Two of her own children, John and Bianca, have taken her to court. They've been suing her for the last few years, actually. And they were in court, you know, August, September last year for the latest round. They're her firstborn son, John Hancock, who's given up his mother's name and taken his grandfather's name to show where he sides, has accused her in court of calculated and deliberate fraud in stripping the family trust of assets that would have gone to him and his sister Bianca. But, of course, Gina had a second marriage and she has two other daughters who are not joining in in suing her and there's been this ongoing fight and battle in the family for over a decade. It's a mess. It's an absolute mess relationally. More than that, Gina may be rich materially, but she is not rich towards God. The only religious institution she's had anything to do with was that she was sent to St Hilda's Anglican Girls' School in Perth by her rich father to complete her high schooling. But she has no interest beyond that. It's not really a picture of family joy and humble trust in the Lord, is it? And sadly, it doesn't have to be that way, but it seems that that pattern is repeated over and over for the richest families in Australia. Think about the Packers. Think about the Murdochs. We cannot look in the present and then judge and envy such people. Wealth and health are no indicators of God's blessing either now or certainly in the future. And that brings me to a second answer to this question. Why should we live for God in a godless world? Well, not only because we know the end of the story, but secondly, because our reward is God, not worldly comforts. Our reward is God. Let's consider again verses 23 to 26. Asaph writes, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It's interesting, these verses. Asaph has been envying things that break God's heart. Sulking about the unfairness of his life in a pool of self-pity. And yet, through all of that, God has been so good to Asaph. He's been with him every moment. He is by his side, holding his hand. He's been resentful. God's been like a father that's taken the hand of the rebellious child and just continued to hold on to it and love him. He said in verse 1, the pure in heart will see God. We looked at the Sermon on the Mount last year. In Matthew 5.8, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. God was always with Asaph. Even when he doubted God's goodness, 
because of the injustices that he saw in the world. Now he sees clearly, he sees his own folly, but he also sees God's faithfulness. And he sees his destiny, his reward is to be with God. That is what he longs for. He's been reminded that to be with God in heaven is the greatest thing. It's not a disappointment like Billy Joel says. When Asaph steps into the glory of the new creation, when you do, if you have turned in faith to Jesus, you're not going to be unimpressed and expressing things like, gee, you know, I thought it'd be a bit better to be with my creator here. And notice he's not worrying about what he will have in heaven. He's not looking for material things any longer. It's all about relationship with God. In verse 25, he's grasped that heaven is about being with your Savior. And so consequently, nothing is of value even here on earth. The only thing that we had a value here is our relationship with God that leads us to that final day. Well, it's a simple truth, isn't it? But it's pretty profound. I wonder, like Asaph, do you find that you have to really fight to maintain clarity on this truth? In a world full of distractions, with people chasing after so many other things, is God all that you desire? Or are you really looking for the things that you hope that he might give you now? The American pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards uh, lived in the first half of the 18th century. He's been called America's greatest theologian, and with good reason. His sermons led hundreds of people to accept the gospel in his lifetime, and his writings have inspired hundreds of thousands of people since his death. He put why we should desire God and nothing else in this way. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven, to fully enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. He goes on, fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, the company of earthly friends, they are mere shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams. But God is the fountain. These are but drops. And God is the ocean. Well, I think he's captured something which we need to hear again in our age. Now, in saying those things, Edwards would be the first to say that that doesn't mean we don't enjoy God's give, good gifts in this life, that we don't give thanks for our spouse or our family or our church, or our job, or whatever it might be, the wonderful creation that God has placed us in here in Wollongong. But I don't need a reward in this life to follow God. As a believer, my reward is in heaven. In fact, if I am searching for things here, I am going to be disappointed. I have missed what God is calling me to as his child. God is not a means to an end. God is the end itself. And so Asaph concludes this psalm in verses 27 and 28 by summarizing these eternal realities that he's reminding himself of again and reminding us by extension. Notice how he concludes, verse 27. Those who are far from you will perish. 
You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Asaph has realized that living for self does not pay. Sin is not more fun or rewarding. Rejection of God and his ways simply leads to eternal destruction. It may be true that the good sometimes die young, so do the evil. As Billy Joel sang, but our earthly lives are so short, <laughs> whether we're given 10 years or 90 years, it is just a blip, isn't it? And it's simply an opportunity, this life, to prepare for eternity. That's what this time is. We need to come to God now while we have the opportunity and realize that relating to our loving creator through the salvation he offers us in Jesus is the thing that will satisfy us. Now, Asaph could say these things, and he lived a thousand years before Christ. Here we are 2,000 years after Jesus. And so we must know more fully God's love demonstrated for us at the cross. Christ's death on our behalf, which paid for our sin, his resurrection, which proved that his death was effective. The lengths that he went to in order to win us forgiveness and secure us life, life that is abundant now as we have direction, God's guidance and counsel, as Asaph says, day by day. More than that, life eternal to come with him forever in heaven. And so living 2,000 years after Christ's death and resurrection, we've got the privilege of seeing all of God's great plan of salvation with greater clarity, the forgiveness, the restored relationship that we can have by faith. And surely we should be able to say as a result with more clarity, verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And he says, as he finishes in verse 28, the result should be, that we want to tell of God's good deeds, which principally involves inviting them into a relationship with him by sharing all that he's done for us. That's how Asaph concludes. It does raise a really difficult question, though, doesn't it? Why is it then that we don't often feel motivated to share the most wondrous thing in the whole world. Why? Is it because, like Asaph, we get drawn into looking at the material possessions of this world and think that's where it's at? We look at the non-Christians around us with their supposed freedom to live however they want in this godless world and we think, that's what I want? So often we just seem to be distracted by the bright lights and the empty promises of our culture. We prefer, we should prefer, Asaph says, to be near God, verse 28. It does seem at times as we look around that we prefer to be close to our phone or our screen or our hobby or whatever it might be. 
you know, how many hours have we tragically lost by simply pursuing anything but God in this fruitless search for joy and satisfaction that we know cannot be met in this world? If only I had read God's word more. If only I had spent more time in prayer. If only I had devoted myself to the goal my purpose in being to love God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength more. Not so that I could feel self-righteous, feel like I've ticked a box, but so that I might be actually energised to share the hope that I have with other people, that they might share in it, that I might focus on my Saviour. Well, this is the first Sunday, obviously, in 2024. And it's in these first couple of weeks of the year, right, when people make their New Year's resolutions. I've got to say I'm not really big on them it's because I never follow through on them, so I've given up long ago in doing them. Or I find that when people do talk them about it, it's, you know, their effort to do some more running or eat less of this or whatever. And they're great things, don't get me wrong, but they seem fairly trivial in the biggest scheme of God's plan for his universe. I'm not against New Year resolutions. I certainly attracted to the idea in a spiritual sense because I want to make progress in my walk with the Lord. I don't want to just like stay put. In fact, you're never static as a Christian. You're either drifting backwards or you're moving forwards, one or the other. So what are some spiritual resolutions you and I might make at the top of 2024? Well, let me suggest a few to you. I want to go back to Jonathan Edwards. Age of 19, he wrote down 70 resolutions that he was going to govern his life by. 70. I'll just give you three. That'll be enough for us to take in. Firstly, commit yourself to glorifying God. He put it this way. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be the most to God's glory. That's a big statement. Uh, before running through the typical list of questions we might think about when we're facing a decision, he would argue believers should ask themselves, will this glorify God? Now, that question may not help you decide what you're going to order from the cafe, but it will help you decide whether to share the gospel with someone or whether to invite that friend to church or whether to support that missionary who's out on the front line sharing the good news, or whether to go on that short-term mission trip and be involved myself that I might share cross-culturally in some way, that I might take a role in seeing God's kingdom expanded, whether here or overseas. Secondly, he placed great value on reading the Bible, meditating on Scripture. Edwards put it this way, resolved to study the Scriptures so steadily, constantly, frequently that I may find and plainly perceive, perceive myself to be growing in my knowledge of God. You know, Edwards was said to wake up at 4 a.m. every morning. No good lighting where he was back in the early 1700s. He wanted to be up at 4 a.m. so he could maximise daylight hours. He wanted to spend, if he could, 13 hours reading God's word. Now, you and I may not have that time. But we have the opportunity to prioritise the time that we do have, right? To make sure that investing in our relationship with God is at the top of our list. 
so that we might keep growing in our relationship with the Lord as we hear his voice. How can I grow if I don't hear his voice through his word? Reading and meditating on scripture will help me grow. Thirdly, and finally, he had a resolution not to waste his life. Edwards put it this way, resolved that I will live as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Edwards resolved to live life in a way that was living in the light of eternity. He saw this life rightly as a vapour. We don't know when the Lord will call us home. We should resolve to live at the start of every new year with the goal of making an everlasting impact, living for God. Probably seen John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. The reason he called it that title was because of Edwards. He's probably the biggest fan of Edwards that's living currently. <laughs> we speak about Edwards over and over. But these truths have been true for every generation of believers, right? Resolving to live in a way that honours the Lord. So what sort of resolutions have you made at the top of 2024? Maybe you haven't written any down. I certainly haven't. But you've probably got them in your head anyway. Well, before we make any list of resolutions of how we're going to live for the Lord, I think we first have to answer the question that we've been considering tonight. Am I serious about living for God in a godless world? That's step one. Am I really God's person? Am I genuinely following Jesus this year? With Asaph, we've considered that question of why we should do that. And we've seen there's at least two reasons in Psalm 73. Number one. Because self-rule will end badly. The alternate path is not worth thinking about. And then secondly, our reward is God. Our relationship with him is utmost. He's our creator, sustainer, redeemer. That is why we are here. Invest in that relationship. I guess my prayer for each of us at the start of this year is that we might be able to say what Asaph said in verse 25 and mean it. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word given to us. We thank you for Asaph and for his wrestling and struggling with this question, a question that hits us powerfully today in a world full of so many things. Lord, help us to come to this same truth, to understand clearly our need to live for you, not out of some forced sense of duty, but out of a great longing to respond to your grace, not in any sense to earn your favour, but simply to live in the light of it, to live as your child in your world, ready for that great day when we will be with you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.